0: But about how, what, and why we believe as we do. A time for those willing to question what they think they know or what they may believe. Those willing to be uncertain for an hour. I'm Eldon Taylor and this is Provocative Enlightenment. All right, our chat room is open and my partner, Rabinder, waits you there now with bated breath. Isn't that right, Ravinder?
1: Yes, I've always got bated breath. I have to remember to breathe sometimes. Huh? All
0: right, you can join us. <laughs> The chat room, that is. Log on by going to ProvocativeEnlightenment.com forward slash chat. So, Baited Breath, tell us all about your chat room.
1: Well, it's a bit hard to talk with Baited Breath. It's a great chat room. It's a great group of people. Um, I l- learn stuff constantly from everyone in there. So, if you want to come join the mix and contribute to my education and your own education at the same time, then do come to ProvocativeEnlightenment.com forward slash chat. We have lots of fun in there, too.
0: All right. In this week's Spotlight, I would like to discuss the difference between what we can control and what we can't. We all know people who are what is commonly referred to as control freaks. Generally speaking, a control freak is a person who feels an obsessive need to exercise control over themselves and others, and to take command of any situation. To some extent, we are all somewhat inclined to be a bit of a control freak, especially in light of the idea that we should be in control of ourselves. But just how much control do we ever truly have? researchers have demonstrated that most if not all of our thoughts originate from the subconscious we do something say something and perhaps we wonder why this too is something we have all experienced where is control at times like these most of us fuss over little things involving ourselves as well including the way we talk to ourselves how much do we weigh how good our clothes look, the shine on our shoes, to the makeup we wear. These things also, we like to think, we have some control over. However, as one ages, they quickly discover that something outside their volition is really in control of much of their appearance. So again, what are we controlling We talk a lot about personal improvement today, and that generally means everything from making more money to becoming a better person. But are we really in control of these things? Research has repeatedly demonstrated connections between our environment and genetics that can lead to everything from criminality to genius. Are we truly in control of this maturation matrix, the so-called nature-nurture aspect of who we are? Further, can we really expect to totally control its influence in our adult lives? If we listen to many experts today, ranging from the philosopher to the neuroscientist, the answer at best is maybe, depending, conditionally, etc. My own research along these lines suggests the only long-term way you can gain control, any control, is by reprogramming your subconscious mind. That said, there are many things in life that we simply can't control with our minds. From time to time the world throws us curveballs that alter our course of direction and sometimes change our lives. We can't control the obvious things like the weather and we can't control many other outside factors as well. So the question arises again, what exactly are we in control of? One of the tactics developed by behavioral scientists often illustrates how little we are in control, while creating a sort of paradox at the same time. The paradox proceeds along a dichotomous line like this. On one side rests the understanding that we are not in control while on the other side is the encouragement to improve ourselves by gaining more self-control. This sort of self-composure, if you will, accepts what cannot be changed and is challenged by that which is believed to be within the grips of change possibilities. So we can be better people. We can be more caring and sharing. We can find more happiness and experience more quality in our lives, but paradoxically so often only because we quit trying to control everything, and that often includes ourselves. Indeed, the whole notion of self-forgiveness is anchored by the realization that what's done is done, and crying over the proverbial spilt milk is only counterproductive. Change your inner talk and thereby change your thinking, and you will change your life. This has long been a motto of my company. Recognizing that some things are beyond our ability to control or change is a giant leap forward in the process of self-realization. My thoughts anyway, what are yours, Ravinder?
1: You know, I think that is really interesting. I mean, when you're talking about control, you come back to the issues of free will, and we've discussed that, and you've had lots of guests on the show. You know, you've had guests on the show that have been adamant that you don't have any free will, period. Everything is is kind of set in stone. I prefer to take a more practical perspective on that. You know, I do understand why some people would say that you don't have any free will. And, you know, it certainly makes perfect scientific sense. Um, But just from my own experience, when I, you know, as I talk to people and my, you know, experiences with people around us, the people who are happiest are those who first act as though they do have free will they do have you know control over themselves um you can't choose what comes to you but you can choose how you react to it and the more you practice reacting in a way that helps you the easier it becomes and the more it happens so um from a scientific perspective i'd say yeah you don't have um you don't have much choice over anything but from what i have seen i think you do and i think you know, it just is more functional if you believe that you do, too.
0: I'm not going to take any exception to that. I believe that if, you know, I, I do believe that we have the ability to exercise levels of free will. But at the same time, I'm going to throw back at you. Have you ever had an aberrant thought? Have you ever had an emotion run Never. in on you?
1: Never. And, I have thoughts. And here's
0: the emotion or here's the thought. And were you in control of that?
1: No. No, they so, come in. So the
0: question here isn't really about so much free will, because, okay, arguably there's at least a tension there. But the question is more about how do I approach the whole idea that I'm in control, and if so, control of what?
1: Absolutely. You know, I think, you know, the, the position you have taken before is the only place that we can really exercise there is in in the programming of our subconscious minds. That's just, you know, that's the basics of what you teach anyway. And I have seen that over and over again. The more you change some of that basic programming, the better your life gets. The more, you know, you achieve, the happier you are. So. And there
0: are some easy ways to do that. We've discussed those also, context, framing, etc. Okay, every week I read some of your letters as our way of involving you while paying respect to the very important role you play in making this show successful. Last week, our show featured Dale Peterson, and we discussed his delightful book, The Ghost of Gombe. Cheryl wrote, I love the stories Mr. Peterson shared about Jane Goodall. The one about her hair had me laughing pretty hard. Thanks for your show. Well, I get that one. I was chuckling, too. Weren't you, Rev? Absolutely. Okay. CB had this to say about our guest's arm gestures, which he saw in the video that was played in the chat room during the break. Power of suggestion, I guess. When he moves both his hands in the air back and forth, it reminds me of some of the clips I have seen of chimps walking on two legs in their arms and hands are out moving up and down, kind of counterbalancing their gait. I don't know what Dale would think of that one. (laughs) His mirror neurons picked up some of the chimpanzee behavior. All right, Tara wrote, Provocative enlightenment has most certainly become my favorite radio show. Well, thank you, Tara. To and I hope I've said that correctly from Malaysia, wrote, Intertalk programs are a knockout. My whole attitude towards life has taken a 180-degree turn for the better. My business has suddenly picked up. People start calling me for the product that I am selling. For those who would like to transform their life, my recommendation to you all is be brave and get a copy of your desired CD and let Intertalk do the transformation to yourself. You have to love that one, huh? I do. And April wrote, I just wanted to say thank you for all of your accomplishments in my life since 1993. Well, thank you, April. But remember, you did the doing. All we did was provide a tool or two. Okay, that's all the time we're going to take for letters today. But we do love your comments, so please keep them coming. You can opine by writing to me at Eldon at com. That's E-L-D-O-N or by joining me on Facebook at Dr. Eldon Taylor. We do sincerely appreciate your thoughts and ideas. Now to today's show, Meditations on Self-Discipline and Failure, with author Professor William Ferriolo. Now, Professor Ferriolo has been with us before. We discussed the principles of Stoicism, but we had little time for the actual practices. So we asked him back to the show. In that way, we can examine some of what the professor refers to as meditations. Okay, in case you missed his last appearance, let me tell you a little about Professor Ferry Olo. Received his Ph.D. in philosophy from the University of Oklahoma in 1977. 1997, not 77. (laughs) Since that time, he has been teaching philosophy at San Joaquin Delta College in Stockton, California. His books include Cynical Maxims and Marginalia and Meditations on Self-Discipline and Failure, Stoic Exercise for Mental Fitness. So, on that, let's get him in here. Welcome back to Provocative Enlightenment, Professor William Ferriolo.
2: Well, thank you for having me back. I'm very pleased that the uh, antecedent conditions and laws of nature have conspired to causally determine my participation in this conversation. <laughs>
0: Uh, You practiced that one now, didn't you? Uh,
2: Just in the last few seconds. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. All right.
0: As you know, Professor, we like to know three things on this show. Who is the messenger, what is the message, and how do we use it? To that end, please share with us the importance that Stoicism has in your life and whether or not you ever lived differently than the Stoic ideal.
2: Oh, I, I nearly always live differently than the stoic ideal, unfortunately, but that's because of uh, weakness and irrationality on my part. Um, I'll give you the Reader's Digest condensed version. I uh, I blew out my knee on my 18th birthday, and I thereby lost my scholarship to college. I had a uh, an Army ROTC scholarship, so I uh, had to find a new future. had to find a new conception of, of what I could be. My career was gone. My college was no longer paid for. Happened to be taking a philosophy course. Um, Asked the professor, I was at Rutgers at the time, asked the professor if there was any way to make a living doing philosophy, and he said, no, not really. (laughs) I had no idea what else to do, so I stuck around until somebody handed me a degree, ended up at the University of Oklahoma in grad school, Uh, took up space until someone shoved a Ph.D. in my face, said, uh, go get a job, Tiger. (laughs) And uh, then I did, and then in my 30s, I realized that... uh, Uh, as was the case with both of my brothers and myself, had a fairly significant, fairly severe anxiety and depression disorder that was uh, more or less ruining my life. I couldn't sleep. I was angry. uh, Just one conflict after another. I stumbled on the um, discourses of Epictetus. And um, I I knew right away, it it hit the proverbial switch. I, I said, oh, this is what I've been looking for. So, uh, you know, since my early 30s until now, I've been uh, kind of assiduously studying stoicism, trying to put it into practice as best I can, failing regularly. But um, I have made progress. I am not quite the, the wreckage of a human being that I once was. I'm I'm just kind of wreckage now. <laughs> you know, I
0: I love how I, I love your humor. Okay, <laughs> uh, you heard today's spotlight, professor. What say you? Are we ever really totally in control of anything?
2: No. Um, no, I'm not a believer in free will. The, I, the only way that free will could exist, and honestly I can't really make sense out of this, is if it is um, if it emanates somehow from a realm transcendent of the natural world. So if, if we are endowed by God with the capacity to initiate causal streams ex nihilo out of nothing, then I suppose that could be free will, although I have a hard time understanding how that would work. Um, in the natural realm, it's pretty clear to me, at least, that um, all events are causally determined by antecedent conditions and laws of nature, and all human deliberation decision-making is causally determined by heredity and environment, broadly construed. But um, here's the good news. We don't need free will. It's Nothing changes once you realize that there's no such thing as free will. It's not as if... Life is thereby stripped of meaning or purpose or anything of that nature. I I suspect that's the fear most people have that if we're not free will, we are the, uh, the pretend amount to uh, automatons or or you know computers or something like that. I think that's just a misconception of our condition.
0: You know, I recently uh, read a journal article that was essentially advising and I'm interpreting a bit here, but essentially advising that we don't talk about whether or not there's such a thing as free will because it's a slippery slope that leads to, well, how do we punish a criminal? Uh, how do we measure intent? Uh, you know, if, if this is all just, you know, in the cards, et cetera, and so forth, it actually could damage the nature of uh, of uh, our social fabric. What 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 are your thoughts on that?
2: Right. Well, that complaint has been around since the ancient Stoics. Um, uh, origin or Oregon, uh, in uh, against Celsus he uh, he mentions the idle argument, which is kind of a sophism directed against Stoicism and its uh, uh, its embrace of causal determinism. And the suggestion is, well, if causal determinism is true, then there is no point in making any effort to do anything. Uh, If you're sick, there's no point going to the doctor because you're either fated to get better or not. But this, of course, just ignores the causal role of the environment. Um, If the doctor, in fact, has a cure for my condition, um, going to the doctor is not causally inert. It's not pointless. Um, It is simply part of a broader causal story. Um, So... It's not as if determinism means that we're all going to end up sitting on the couch watching Jerry Springer eating bonbons. At least I certainly hope not. That would be horrifying. <laughs> um, it, we're still going to do all the things that we normally do. We're still going to get up tomorrow and uh, try to find projects that are worthy of our time. And um, it, free will seems to me to be kind of a uh, uh, an overlay on top of our perceptions of reality. And it's an overlay that we could do without. I, I don't think it uh, it adds anything to our conception of the human condition that that is uh, particularly useful.
0: So you would consider as an environmental factor, an environmental influence, um, the reason you wrote your book, or the reason there are moral teachers. Uh, sure. That let's add something into the environment that perhaps you're going to run onto that is like the doctor that that may alter the course of um, your behavior, your thinking, etc. Have I got that right?
2: Precisely. Uh, persons who read my book and whose brains are trained to interpret the markings on the book as English. Uh, in other words, people who can read English and have been cause, causally determined to read English, their brains will be altered by what they read. Just as my students' brains, I hope, are altered by my lectures, Um one need not reject causal determinism to embrace the, uh, the power of external causes, environmental causes, to alter brain states and to hopefully alter them, uh, for the better, not morally better, but uh, better in a non-moral sense of being um, more useful, having uh, greater utility, greater uh, range of application, and so on.
0: Providing a higher quality of life in theory,
2: correct? Uh, hopefully,
0: hopefully. Okay, so <clears throat> let's let's pursue that for just a minute if we can. Sure. Stoicism is defined typically as the endurance of pain or hardship without a display of feelings, and without complaint, um, that sounds like the stiff upper lip stuff that we used to uh, hear coming out of the
2: UK. It does. Unfortunately, That that's lowercase s stoicism. That is the uh, stoic behavioral inclination, the stoic attitude, the stoic countenance. Um, that is not stoic philosophy. It's not entirely incompatible with stoic philosophy either, but um Stoic philosophy teaches us that we should be uh very concerned about self discipline about uh maintaining and increasing in virtue and in wisdom um We should not be emotionally or psychologically thrown off balance easily when events are challenging um so it is true that you know if warfare breaks out in your neighborhood. Uh, you are better off remaining Stoic in the uh, lowercase s sense. You are better off sort of remaining as calm, as rational as possible. But um, that is not that is not a fair representation of Stoic philosophy, which is far more uh, complex than just merely having a certain demeanor.
0: Would you say that that is the most common misunderstanding about Stoicism, this idea that, you know, you're just basically, not even above, but out of the fray?
2: Yes. Uh, the most common uh, uh, objection or the most common challenge I encounter is is roughly that one. I think uh, pe- a lot of people, especially from my generation, imagine the character Spock from Star Trek, you know, the Vulcan. Uh, <laughs> his, all of his actions are dictated by logic. He's emotionless. Um, he might be the paradigmatic example of lowercase s stoicism, but he's not a stoic philosopher. He's He's just a Vulcan.
0: Just a Vulcan. Okay, I love your facetious humor. You know, all right. Are all Stoics facetiously humorous? Uh,
2: no, no. Unfortunately, <laughs> from my interactions with them online, uh, a lot of them aren't and don't appreciate my humor. <laughs> so,
0: <laughs> they take always... it too seriously. All right, oh. let's go right into your meditations. That's what I wanted to talk to you about this show. Your book is delightful. It's sometimes challenging. It's always entertaining. So, look, from Book 1, Meditation 3, you write, quote, You need not take seriously anyone's alleged right, in quotations, not to be offended, whatever that supposedly means. In today's PC climate, this seems to be an extraordinarily brash and perhaps even profane idea, Professor.
2: So please flesh out
0: for us what you mean.
2: Yes, it was intended to be, uh, it was intended to be contrary to the prevailing orthodoxy. I'm a, you know, I'm a professor on a college campus in California, of all places. Um, and I am one of maybe three, uh, members of the faculty who would not self identify as a liberal or as a progressive. In fact, I'm pretty far removed from that. And I, I just have, I, I, I've mentioned before, I'm, I'm as much a cynic as I am a stoic. And, uh, I have a, Very intense, probably more intense than is healthy, but a very intense, negative, visceral reaction to anyone telling me that I am not permitted to say this and that I am morally or legally obligated to say that, especially when that is something that I believe to be inaccurate, untrue, misleading. Um, The whole idea that there's any such thing as a right to be offended, I think if people just carefully consider this. They will realize that that will stultify nearly all discourse, which is the last thing that a professional educator should ever do or should ever be a part of. Um, Anyone can claim to be offended by anything. We encounter lots of obviously phony and manufactured outrage out there these days. Um, I mentioned on another interview that I, I allegedly offended one of my colleagues a few years back by saying, Merry Christmas. (laughs) <laughs> so, if, if that can offend someone or allegedly offend someone, I, I'm, it's not clear to me what what doesn't offend that person, and I'm certainly not going to allow persons of such um, you know people who are that emotionally fragile to uh, circumscribe my right to free speech and freedom of expression. I I think the people who are so hypersensitive that they get offended. By Merry Christmas, I think maybe they're the problem and not me. <laughs> it's okay, going crazy.
0: now no, I, I get that totally. In fact, I'm, you know, I, I totally agree with you. I think this PC stuff has gone way, way too far. But yeah, um, that's my personal opinion, not my opinion as a Stoic. So, are you saying that this is consistent with a Stoicism of philosophy?
2: Yes, I am. And there are a number of other commentators on Stoicism today who uh, will disagree with me on this point, or disagree with me on on various uh, elements of application of this general principle. But as I say, I, I never forget the fact that Stoicism descended from cynicism. I mean, Zeno, uh, he interacted with the Cynics, and he wanted to develop a more palatable school of philosophy for the masses. The Cynics were sort of notorious for doing very, very taboo, very shocking things in public. People like Diogenes, Antisthenes, Crates. He wanted something a little more palatable than that. But uh, I, I don't want to lose the uh, the Cynic heart of of Stoicism. And the Cynics would never have tolerated any form of restriction on their freedom of speech. Uh, Parharasia, probably mispronouncing that. Diogenes said that was the the most valuable. Uh, the most cherished of, uh, of all the elements of the human condition, the ability to say what he believed needed to be said. And yeah. uh, I'm not about to give that up without a fight.
0: I don't know. For me, I, I see it as a threat on free speech. I see that as a threat on culture, tradition. So oh, yeah. I, I'm totally in your camp with that. We've got a break. So... We're speaking with Professor William Ferriolo about his work and book, Meditations on Self-Discipline and Failure. You can learn more about our guest by visiting ProvocativeEnlightenment.com and clicking on the links to today's show or by checking out his page and book at Amazon.com. highly recommend this book. Now, we have a video for you in our chat room, Stoicism in a Nutshell. So if you're not in the chat room already... Now is the time to get on over there and you can do that by going to provocativeenlightenment.com forward slash chat. Okay, do please stay tuned. We'll be right back.
1: You're listening to Provocative Enlightenment with Elton Taylor. Change has never been easier. Whether you wish to lose weight, stop smoking, build better relationships, become creative, enjoy ultra-prosperity, or simply relax and promote self-healing, InnerTalk has been repeatedly demonstrated effective in the most rigorous of scientific studies. Our customers love InnerTalk. Sean wrote, I have struggled with bulimia for over 30 years and have never been able to lose weight without restoring to it until I used InnerTalk. Vicki wrote, My hubby has been using the Stop Snoring CD and already his dangerous and raucous snoring levels have stopped. Celeste wrote, I recently graduated from Taft Law School with honors. I'm writing to tell you how much your Intertalk CD, Excel in Exams, has helped me. With over 300 titles to choose from, there is something for everyone. Check it out today by going to intertalk.com.
0: Unlock the power of your mind. This is Provocative Enlightenment with Alvin Taylor.
3: cold till he messed up his back and couldn't work anymore he said one of these days you'll get out of these hills keep your nose on the grindstone and out of the pills see the ways of this world will just bring you to tears Keep the Lord in your heart and you'll have nothing to fear. Live the best that you can and don't lie and don't steal. Keep your nose on the grindstone and out of the pills. Well, daddy, I've been trying. I just can't catch a break. There's too much in this world that I can't seem to shake. But I remember your words, Lord, they bring me to chills. Keep your nose on the grindstone and out of the pills.
0: Welcome back. If you've just joined us, we're chatting with Professor William Ferriolo about his work and book, Meditations on Self-Discipline and Failure. You can learn more about our guest by visiting provocativeenlightenment.com and clicking on the links to today's show or by checking out his page and book at amazon.com. I'd go to that page, amazon.com, and get that book while I was at it. Now we ask our guests for their favorite music, music that has some true significance to them. Music psychology is, as you know by now, a field of research that I'm particularly interested in with practical relevance in many areas. So now we just played some of Tyler Childers' Keep Your Nose on the
2: Grindstone.
0: Is this part of your humor, Professor? Is that why you chose this music?
2: (laughs) Actually, no. First of all, I just really love that song. And uh, man, Tyler Childers is just an incredibly uh, talented guy. That's just him and a guitar. And that's that's live. It's not even in a studio. But um, uh, keep your nose to the grindstone is kind of an expression indicating the importance of self-discipline. And the importance of resisting temptation, temptations to misbehavior. You know, keep away from those pills, boy. Keep your nose on the grindstone. Work hard. That's certainly um consistent with uh stoicism. One of the four cardinal virtues is uh, temperance or uh, self-discipline. So I, I think it's it, there's a little bit of stoicism in, in that song. Well,
0: okay. Now share with us, since you brought it up, what, what are the four cardinal? You just gave us one. What are the other three?
2: Wisdom, uh, Courage, and Justice.
0: Wisdom, Courage, and Justice. All right, let's get back to your meditations. I don't, I don't want to waste any time because there's too many good ones. And, and you know, for the audience out there, we might get through, I don't know, another dozen even. I, I doubt that, but there are hundreds. So you most definitely want to get your hands on this book. All right. You say... Resist being swayed by the opinions of the majority or those who regard themselves as your peers. Opinions are insignificant, ephemeral things. Close quote. Are we then to ignore our peers? And um, are you able to manage that, especially since tenor might be one of your goals?
2: Oh, I've been tenured for a long, long time now. I'm old. <laughs> um, <laughs> uh, so, so you can
0: write this now you're on the other side, huh?
2: Yeah, yeah, now I'm safe. Um, <laughs> no, I, uh, opinions in and of themselves, whether they come from my peers and, and you know what exactly uh, defines one as a peer is an open question. Opinions in and of themselves don't impress me, including my own opinions, by the way. If someone shows me conclusive evidence that my current opinion is incorrect, I change my opinion. Um, so the advice is really... Uh, Advice to seek evidence and not to be swayed merely by majority opinion or merely by prevailing orthodoxies or sort of, um, you know, the prevailing general judgment of your day and age. Uh, Common sense has been uh, proven wrong all too often for us to put too much trust in it.
0: That would be a particularly important admonition at this moment in our American history, would it not? I mean, go ahead.
2: Oh, I, I was disagreeing with you. It absolutely would be. Um, I think there are a lot of orthodoxies these days that are, at least to my knowledge, entirely devoid of evidentiary support, or at least uh, lacking. The, the, the support is um, not sufficient to to persuade me. So there are a lot of things that are uh, a lot of propositions that are taken to be common sense uh, that I'm at least somewhat skeptical about.
0: You know, Bernays gave us this whole notion of propaganda switching the, the Catholic original version from truth to, you know, nonsense that we're told in order to, in his words, orchestrate the behavior of the elite or, or by the elite. Um, how do you separate the propaganda um you know, whether it's a product or a platform and a, and a political campaign, how do you separate the propaganda from fact?
2: Well, it's often very difficult. And in my case, I um, I don't make the attempt to do so in any area in which I'm not fairly well versed. So if, for example, if we embark on a discussion of economics, I, I will just admit up front I, I know almost nothing about it and um, I I will not – embrace or reject any proposition unless someone can marshal evidence in support of it, evidence that I can understand. And in many cases, I will not be able to understand it. Uh, So I try to stick to areas that I I at least believe I know something about, I I at least believe I have sufficient background in to to understand evidence as it is presented to me. And uh, in the absence of compelling evidence, I'm, I'm going to at the very least withhold judgment and i think there are many areas um in which we are sort of expected to um embrace some orthodoxy or uh meet with ostracism meet with ridicule we are threatened with some form of sanction or another how dare you not believe that x uh, and there are many cases in which i in fact do not believe that x is true um it it might be but i i uh, just Ask uh, you know, I ask that someone attempt to persuade me, by by dint of something other than uh, threats and uh, appeals to you know add, add popular appeals.
0: Today, if you watch any one hour news program, you're going to get sold messages that range from economics, perhaps to national security, everything in between, including you know Mary Jane this and John Doe that. Uh, and and people are going to walk away with those sound bites they do every day they gather at the water fountain at work they pass them around they they be they incorporate them as their opinion what is the advantage of a stoic's perspective as you just described it to us versus that mind that will collect anything that it wants to hear and then repeat it
2: well i i think it's a matter of discrimination which unfortunately has for some reason become a dirty word i 'm um, not talking here about you know discrimination right. on the basis of race or something, but right. to be discriminating in the sort of traditional use of the word is to um, sort of uh, insist upon some sort of factual evidentiary basis before forming a judgment so you know if I have a, a bunch of people tell me that um, you know uh, uh, I ought to believe thus and so. And I ask, okay, what is the evidence on which you you base that suggestion? What what is the argument in support of the proposition that I'm supposed to believe, uh, or I'm somehow a bad person? If they can't uh, provide evidence, if if they if I can tell if they've never actually been asked for evidence before, I get a little suspicious. So I uh, I'm more hesitant to embrace um, propositions commonly embraced by the masses because. Uh, Part of wisdom is discerning, uh, as best one can, truth from falsity, uh, rational from irrational belief, uh, uh, evidentiary justification from the lack thereof.
0: Let me try this on you. I kind of interpreted, and, and I just gave a small quote from this particular meditation, but I kind of interpreted it this way, um, not in exclusion of what you said, but in addition to, if uh if I collect all these news bits and I walk away and, you know, and I, what ends up is I have some investment, perhaps some worry or some good feeling, depending on, you know, how the slant goes, and I know nothing about it. You know, the economy is good, the economy is bad, uh, you know, jobs are up, the market is down, or, wh- or whatever I might hear, okay? If I take that on board without having any real knowledge about what it is, it can create a, a level of psychic tension that's not necessarily healthy, and it certainly would do me absolutely no good. So, if I were to recognize that I know nothing about economics, and this is just a pundit, I could care less. Would I not have a a more a more stoic life, but a more uh, able ability to enjoy my life?
2: Uh, you may very well, and the uh, the skeptic school, one of the other Hellenistic schools, um, made the case more or less that uh, the suspension of judgment tends to reduce our emotional and psychological distress. When you become committed to a proposition, evidence to the contrary creates cognitive dissonance, and it creates uh, you know various uh, forms of anxiety or frustration, and so on. So the skeptics kind of wanted us to suspend judgment, more or less across the board. Uh, the Stoics um, want us to suspend judgment uh, in those cases in which compelling evidence is absent, not not across the board. I, I don't suspend judgment about the proposition that all triangles have three sides. You know, I'm I'm persuaded. <laughs> uh, if someone asked me to consider uh, the proposition that the Earth is flat. I'm not going to spend a lot of time considering that. <laughs> if, if you've got evidence, I'd love to see it, but I, I'm not I'm not going to hold my breath. Um, so I, I would say when you have conclusive evidence, by all means, uh, form the relevant judgment, act in accordance with it. But when you lack conclusive evidence, maybe it's not wise to uh, not only form the judgment for which you lack evidence, but to go you know, spending hundreds of billions of taxpayer dollars in pursuit right. of something that might be Uh, a pipe dream, maybe not a a great idea.
0: Well, and I think we all need to remember, I'll just throw this in at the same time, that just because we heard a pundit say it doesn't mean that it's absolutely fact. All right. That's
2: that's for sure. I'm not impressed with punditry. No kidding. (laughs) All right, we hear a lot. The profession seems to be pretty low.
0: (laughs) I'm on the same scale with you. We hear a lot about the importance of empathy today. And many people suffer and die in the world. You say, however, that, quote, to love others is noble, but to despair at their mortality and fragility is nothing but an invitation to needless suffering and impotent anxiety. All right. I love that impotent anxiety. Are we to deduce then from this statement that grieving is nothing more than impotent anxiety?
2: I would not say it's nothing more than impotent anxiety. There is probably a cathartic um, effect that is psychologically beneficial. Uh, The expression of grief is in many ways, I think, beneficial to those family members and friends who remain. Um, There is, however, uh, a component of grieving, especially excessive grief, that is, I think, impotent and pointless. Um, I love my wife and I am aware that uh, she is going to die someday, and I am going to die someday. So we will be separated. If I were to obsess and perseverate about the fact that I am going to lose her, either when I die or when she dies, uh, that is impotent, it seems to me. that is. I, I'm not, it's not clear to me what benefit will come of that. So my job... Uh, is to love her and our family and our friends as best I can for as long as I can and uh accept rationally accept the fact that none of this lasts forever uh I will do everything in my power to protect her come what may, but uh I cannot protect her from mortality and nor can I protect her from every happenstance that might uh might befall her she she's in Berkeley right now i 'm in Stockton, but you know. Anything can happen. Uh, Obviously, it would be, if if I were doing nothing but uh, worrying intensely about her right now, I couldn't even conduct this interview.
0: Right. Uh, But, you know, one of the things that I like about your interpretation, and and I've talked to other so-called Stoics, um, experts and professors um, is the practical side of how, and, and the practical real? Uh, the, let me just back up a minute. The practical reality of how we can improve our lives by adopting not the stoicism that we began to cover in the in, in the beginning, that, that stiff upper lip, but the stoic perspective that gives rise to improving our quality of life by giving us an opportunity to do all that we can do to change what we can change or to, you know, <clears throat> that whatever limited control that we might have, like protecting our family and loving our family and and uh, providing for our family, while at the same time realizing that there are things that we simply have no control over and there is no sense, no practical reason to perform at some impotent level, regardless of the nature. Um, th- that's my take on your work, Professor. For what it's worth.
2: Yes. Um. Uh, if, if I contribute anything to uh, the public's understanding of Stoicism, and it's not clear that I do, but if I do, it's it's going to be in the realm of practical application of Stoic principles if you want to know about the history and evolution development of the school of stoicism and and um uh, you know uh the uh, physics and and uh, logic and and ethics and how those are tied together in sort of a grand theory uh read john sellers read massimo Pigliucci, read donald robertson read aa a. long those guys are all a thousand times smarter than me and they know a lot more than i do if i can do anything it is show people how to without knowing all that put this into practice and get your cognitive house in order so that you suffer less and you behave in a more rational, virtuous fashion than you otherwise would, even though I All myself right. am kind of a disaster.
0: I have to ask this is the yes, self deprecation. Is that a part of stoicism as well? Uh,
2: I, you know, I, I think it actually is. Um, I, it's also just sort of, uh, Habit, but I don't want anyone to think that this is um, some sort of false modesty. I'm not being dishonest when I describe no. myself in this fashion. I, uh, I'm I'm not particularly bright. I'm not particularly uh, skilled in any area. I'm I'm just a guy. If if I can do this, anyone can do this, and that's uh, that's the one advantage I have over people like Massimo and Donald and John Sellers is that they're all really smart, and and I'm not. That's my advantage. <laughs> I, don't
0: know that I buy that i i in fact i don't think i do at all but all right i'll, I'll allow you to have it okay. moving on in book 2 meditation 6 you state kindness toward animals is an almost unalloyed good now it's easy to love one's pet But kindness to animals goes beyond the family dog, Professor. How about all the domesticated animals that are brutally slaughtered every day in the name of food or the cruel farming methods? So I've got a two-part question for you. One, are you vegan or vegetarian? And two, do you think your admonition regarding kindness to animals applies with respect to all
2: animals? Uh, in answer to the first question. I'm I'm neither vegan nor vegetarian. I love meat. I, I consume much more of it than is healthy for any one human being. Um, and if that means that uh, I am at some level a hypocrite, I will plead uh, no contest. Um, I if uh, I have no problem with vegans or vegetarians. Um, I have no objection to it. Um, if you read Peter Singer's work, you know he, he makes a compelling case from a sort of consequentialist perspective, and I, I have a hard time buying into consequentialism, but other people will, will buy it. Um, uh, we, we ought not to be needlessly cruel to animals, and it may well be that uh, not only the factory farming system but all of the consumption of animals we do is needlessly cruel, and I may be a hypocrite i, I it's
0: entirely possible. All right, well, I'll put you down as a hypocrite. I happen to I happen to think that just personally, that one's a little dissonant, for what it's worth. You know, who am I to be telling you? Let's take another one of your meditations. You okay. state flatly, and I love this, politicians are not to be trusted. Do not be a child and believe otherwise. Uh-huh. Flesh it out for us.
2: Well, um, if i were to ask you to list all of the um you know honest politicians all of the sort of pristinely um uh truth telling politicians it, it, that would be a short conversation um i i just always keep in mind that this here um uh, and in most you know in in democratic societies it is a representative system is it not i mean we we elect people and then we complain about them being corrupt and and uh, dishonest and they are for the most part But we do elect them, so um, I I hesitate to judge politicians too harshly, even after saying that they're mostly corrupt, mostly liars. As far as I can tell, it's very difficult to get elected to any significant public office telling the truth, the whole truth, and nothing but the truth. And I shudder to think at what I would do with the power of being a senator or a governor or, God forbid, the president of the United States. I, I doubt I could be trusted in those positions. The temptation has uh, got to be overwhelming.
0: All right, I've got a ton more questions, but we're getting short in time. I still have to try this from book okay, well, three. I want, to
2: med- be, I want to be clear so far: we've got me being uh, corrupt, hypocritical, and not overly bright. So I want your <laughs> listeners to write that down.
0: <laughs> Here we have some more of that self-deprecating, facetious humor uh, from Book Three, Meditation Three, begins with this statement. Quote, there is a time for violence. Do not delude yourself with sentimentality about this matter. The decision to engage in violence to use it as a tool for some noble purpose is yours to make Close quote. now in today's world, we see suicide bombers carrying out this admonition. Uh, I don't believe this is what you had in mind, but um, in when their cause is in the name of their God or their country, is that not noble?
2: Uh it's only noble if they are correct and in the moral right. And I uh I don't think the suicide bombers are. Uh if it turns out I'm wrong about that, well then I I, I guess I'm I'm going to the bad place when it's all over. But um uh there are, in my view uh morally defensible, in fact morally obligatory uses of violence. Uh you kick in my door where my wife and kids sleep, I am meeting you at the door with closed fists and almost certainly weapons in hand. Uh as for, you know, something like the suicide bombing that you have every reason to believe in advance is going to kill innocents, even though they tend to try and define away innocence. I have no respect for that.
0: All right, I'm going to jump real quick because we only have about 45 seconds. You say find something before, which you may sincerely humble yourself. I so love that. Please give us a 30-second soundbite. What do you mean?
2: Uh, I was thinking of God at the time, uh, and I still I, I I lean slightly toward the intelligent design hypothesis. It strikes me as as very odd that the world is anthropic. Uh, I don't buy the multiverse uh, dodge. I think probably the world was designed, and I'll go ahead and use the word God to refer to the designer. But if there is no God, certainly one can humble oneself at the grandeur and majesty of uh, nature in itself. Creation Um, itself.
0: I totally agree. Anthony Flew said it in his last book, there is a God, the great, you know atheist of my philosophy education. I want to thank you, uh, Professor, for your work, your willingness to share it with us. I wish we had more time. There is so much more power in this book. I highly recommend it to all of you out there listening. Well, we've come to the end of another episode of Provocative Enlightenment. I want to thank all of you for joining us. I hope you enjoy the show, and we'll join us again next week, same time and same place. Until then, remember, believing in yourself always matters. Provocative Enlightenment has been brought to you by Progressive Awareness Research and other sponsors Provocative Enlightenment is a syndicated show and appears on other networks For a schedule of times, visit ProvocativeEnlightenment.com If you're interested in becoming a sponsor, write to Eldon at EldonTaylor.com